All right. What is up, Celeste? What's up, Sammy? Hello. So very exciting episode today. Um, Sammy and I are so excited to have you, Celeste. Um, it's, it's great. And also this is your second time on bikini things now. So I'm really excited to have you as a return guest. How are you doing? I'm doing awesome. I'm happy to be back and grateful to be connecting with both of you today. Awesome. So I think most people, probably most of our listeners, most of the people in our niche probably know who you are, but could you just maybe give your, you know, 60 second elevator pitch of who you are and what you, what you do, Celeste? I know you do a lot. Yeah. So that's really cool to hear. I think most people know me through Confessions of a Bikini Pro podcast. And then because of that, they understand that I'm a mental health professional. So for the educational side of things, I have my bachelor's in psychology, my master's in clinical mental health counseling, and then I went on to get my national counselor certification. And I specialize in helping competitors and non-competitors, but pretty much anyone who's struggling with their food relationship and body image to make peace with those things without sacrificing their fitness goals. Love that. And at this point, is most of your business competitors, Celeste, or do you have, you know, kind of an even mix or what does that look like? Most of them are competitors, but I also have worked with teams and I'm currently working with a rock climbing team. So I support them. Believe it or not, they go through a lot of the same struggles, uh, especially when you're thinking about performance and size and strength and all of these things combined. Uh And then also with a weight loss coaching team, I've worked closely with them. I'm not currently working with them, but I did. And then Um, I've worked with a lot of general population people, even done some events that included a mixture of those kinds in with competitors. But I would say if you broke down like into a percentage, 95% are competitors. How long have you been doing this for? Uh, Well, I started my business in 2015, but I was doing online coaching, like training, nutrition. And then I realized I didn't I didn't have the passion for that like I do with mental health. So when I launched the podcast in 2018, my message was already to help people build more than just a body, but I never saw it applying to bodybuilders, which is crazy because the whole reason it developed was because of my own issues post-show. And then I'm like, oh my goodness, all these women I'm speaking to have similar struggles or journeys and we can connect them with mental health. And that became my mission after that. Then it was like, I just want to bridge that gap without competitors feeling like they have to give up competing because that's generally what mental health professionals will tell them to do. And I'm very much anti the all or nothing. And that's, I believe, an extreme approach to something that doesn't have to be handled that way. That's awesome. And I feel like that's definitely something that a lot of people just like sweep under the rug and don't talk about. So the fact that that is what you're highlighting, it's like, we need to talk about it. Let's talk about it. I think that's so awesome. Thank you. Yeah. So that's maybe a great jumping off point, Celeste. Um, That, that idea of not having an all or nothing mindset, because I think you could argue, especially at the pro level, it kind of maybe has to be right. All or nothing. So what are maybe some ways that, Like, what does that actually look like? Not having an all or nothing approach as an amateur or a pro competitor, whether you're in your prep or you're in an off season. Well, the reason I say I'm anti all or nothing is because I generally find that pendulum swing gets really big. So we're looking at someone who's deep into prep. That's all they're focused on, all they're thinking about. Maybe they're isolating themselves or they're not engaging in other aspects or values of their life. And then you have the opposite side of that pendulum that's like they're in their improvement season. Maybe that's when they're trying to live it up and they're doing all their dating and they're hanging out with friends. And Or maybe that's when they finally engage with their partner again. Or that's when they're able to focus on work or other projects. So that pendulum swing is really big. And my goal is to help competitors find a smaller swing. That doesn't mean we're never going to go to an extreme on either end. But that shouldn't be the goal. My belief is that if we can keep it as close to that middle part, where it's just a little bit here and there, we'll make more progress in the long run and for a longer period of time. So you have sustained effort. Now, I understand competing attracts a pretty extreme mentality, generally speaking. So it 
yeah, it, it pretty much feeds that. And I, I think it's a beneficial thing because there's a reason why people become IFBB pros. There's a reason why people are able to push themselves to a level that most people can't. However, what is the value of that or doing that if then you don't have anything else in your life outside of it? And I think it's easy to get lost in what we see on social media and this little corner of the world. And we think that's the whole world. And then, you know, maybe you're not prepping. And then all of a sudden your whole identity has been wrapped up in that and you lose yourself. So my goal is to help competitors have very empowering and fulfilling preps and improvement seasons to be able to challenge themselves enough to want to keep going and feel gratified in that process, but not be so challenging that after that 12 or 20 weeks or a year of shows back to back, that they're going the complete opposite way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And like what you were saying too, it's like, it literally becomes your personality, right? And then too, it's like, as a competitor, your social media is naturally going to be filled with other competitors. So you're sitting there and you're so consumed in this competition world that you're consuming what other people are doing and how their preps are going. And then you're, that's where the spiral of comparison starts. And it's like, well, why don't I look like that? And they look like this and they're this many weeks out. So how would you say like social media, obviously that kind of summed up how it's affected it, but would you say you have tips for competitors in terms of social media to kind of negate that? Spiral. Yeah, specifically with social media, I would recommend following accounts of other interests of yours. So like if you like dogs, you'll follow Frankie. If you are interested in, I don't know, maybe fashion or makeup, follow those kinds of accounts outside of the fitness industry. Maybe you like um, spiritual related content. Expose yourself to other realms of interest so it doesn't seem so zoomed in. Now there's something to be said about being really zoomed in on a goal because you need, generally you need that laser focus to be able to achieve greatness in it. However, it shouldn't come at the expense of other meaningful things in your life. So with social media, I think it's important to remember it's a zoomed in lens and it's curated with an algorithm that's meeting whatever you're interacting with or wanting to expose you yeah. to more of that. So being Those mindful of what help. Go oh, ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off, Celeste. You're, you're spot you're on. Good. Apps are designed to maximize the amount of time we spend on them. So they, every little metric, how long you linger on a post, how long you watch it, whether you like it or not, you know, every little thing that you think may not even be an interaction they're capturing as data and almost it's like weaponized against us to keep us scrolling and keep us looking in at those apps. So I definitely relate to that. I've had times where I felt like my Instagram almost became unhealthy because it was just all competing, you know, and granted a lot of my yeah. friends are competitors. So it's like, I'm just following my friends, <laughs> but it, be it becomes this very, you know, one-sided view of the world yeah, yeah and especially to sorry i guess especially to, for new competitors it's like you're you're just starting because i've only been competing for two years so even when i first started like I was like, okay, I want to follow as many competitors as I can, people in the industry, so I have an idea of what to expect, what to look for, and your intention is pure as to why you're following them, but then you don't realize like that you know, subconscious reasoning of the scrolling and the, cons the consumption and the overanalyzing and the comparison and stuff like that. So it's like it's being able to take that step back of like self-actualization and realizing like, okay, this is actually becoming an issue and then fixing it. Yeah, it definitely takes that awareness and recognizing what, what it might be having an impact on in your life. Is it positive? Is it negative? Are most of your comparisons like you're looking up to someone and putting yourself down or are you using it as a tool to almost feed a version of you that sees herself or themselves as better in some way too, which can also have a negative impact, especially if then you don't uphold those standards according to that identity of which has been crafted by what you see and what you believe fits that identity and is accepted and celebrated by that identity. As soon as you don't meet those standards, now you're looking down on yourself. You're feeling bad about yourself instead of saying, okay, maybe that's what I did and it got me there, but there's probably 10, 15, 20 other ways I can get there. But because I'm so critical and I should, I should have done it this way, now I can't see myself through 
another approach because what if it threatens my belonging in the community? What if it threatens people's respect for me? What if it threatens how others have viewed me all this time? And that's generally where we see maybe some of those negative effects come in. Yeah. And I think that's a great kind of entry into the next question because um, I definitely want to dive into reversing because I feel like that is where the transition of being in prep and being this action hero that completed a prep and stepped on stage. And then, you know, you're seeing all of the people that, and I'm like currently going through this and on the tail end of like, I don't want to say recovering from it, but like regaining my like footing is not reversing properly, seeing everybody that I competed with reversing properly and how their improvement seasons are being so beneficial for them. And I'm like stuck in this like lull period. So what would you say, like, what advice do you have for people who struggle with reversing and, and things like that? So I want to ask you first, just from your own personal experience, do you share when you're struggling or like how hard it's been for you? Recently. So at first, when I was in the spiral of not reversing properly, I was almost embarrassed to share it because I had shared so much during prep and it was a prep that got me my pro card into my first season of turning pro. So I was like, all right, cool. I'm like on top of the world right now. And then completely screwed up my reverse. And I'm like, I'm literally embarrassed to share this after everybody just saw all these great accomplishments. It's like, I have almost no relevancy to post right now, but I'm, like I said, I'm on kind of the tail end of it and starting more to share the struggle that I, you know, now that I actually like have taken a step back and realized what, where I went wrong and like the process of it all. Well, I asked that cause it's very hard to share that openly, right? So kudos to you for being able to talk about it. Keep in mind, there's other people who probably are going through it and not talking about it. They're not through to that tail end part yet where they can, it might look good on the surface, and it may not be. I've worked with clients who are well-known in the industry who haven't <laughs> expressed that I can share who they are, who you would never know that they were going through that based on what you see. Mm-hmm. So it's important to keep in mind, like we don't always see everything. We yeah. can be real on social media and know people who are real on social media, but there's that other side where not everybody might share that intention. So if you go on the app with the intention to be real, you expect others are as well. And that's not always the case. And it's also important to keep in mind that everyone's experience is going to look different. So your prep looked very different than theirs. Their improvement season, their reverse set will look very different. And if you can find the approach that's best for you, you're going to come out much further along than the person who's maybe white knuckling it. And you don't know that they're white knuckling it. So we only know so much. That's kind of how I look at it from the social media perspective. Just like I wouldn't want someone to feel bad seeing me nail my reverse. Like I wouldn't want someone to feel better if they were and I wasn't. So I think sometimes we fall into that comparison because we see what gets rewarded. And you were rewarded your entire prep for nailing it, crushing it. You're getting your goals. Everything's happening the way you wanted it to. It's like this amazing journey. And then suddenly it's not. The the next step doesn't really represent that part of you. So it feels Mm -hmm. like a challenge. So yeah, your identity kind of gets threatened in the reverse diet if you don't uphold it. And what I find most often is people who don't follow through on what they wanted to follow through on feel worse about themselves. And then the people who do follow through feel better. Their bodies could look almost identical or have the same type of response reverse, but the person who's struggling with what they do is going to have a harder time looking at themselves or feeling good about themselves because our intention and, and our action means a lot to us. And we want to live in alignment and in congruency. So something I always recommend is if you are struggling post-show or in your reverse diet, you're likely really craving control again. You want to be back in control, but it's better to aim for congruency. So congruency meaning between your identity and your behaviors. So we have to almost redefine what's a competitor in improvement season? What are the expectations and definitions? And are those realistic for me? Can I uphold that for myself? And if not, what do I need to adjust or adapt just a little bit? And that might even be up here in order to make that an easier transition for me moving forward before we spiral that is even further. Very, very true. 
Celeste, I have a, a thought for you and I kind of want to get your opinion on it. Okay. There's a lot of there's a lot of evidence to show that the language we use with people, um, you know, teachers in classrooms, things like that, um, can prime people for a response, right? Like they've done studies where in a workplace environment or at school, if, you know, the test prompts have words like, you know, challenging, hard, you know, um, obstacles, things like that, people report having a more negative outlook or experience or do more poorly if it's a if it's a test to some extent i feel like competitors nowadays are almost like primed and they talk about how we can prime people with our language i feel like competitors a little bit are almost primed to i wouldn't say fail but like not follow their reverses because i think it's so commonly talked about that oh it's so hard it's so hard to reverse it's so difficult and I say that partially because like my first season is, and granted I've competed eight times. I'll say this. So I've done eight preps. Six of the eight reverses were like perfect. One was kind of a disaster. My head was all over the place. The one this year, it wasn't an A plus, but it wasn't, it wasn't that bad either. Um, my first reverse was no big deal. I was eating like, you know, 1200 calories, not very much. And my coach and I didn't meet for almost two weeks after my show. And so I just kept eating the same stuff that I was like my peak week, like it was no big deal. And then I came into the gym still shredded and he was like, what's going on? Like what? Are, and I was like, I was waiting for us to talk about what we're doing next. Like so clueless, right? That's, it sounds silly now, but that's how it happened. And I think sometimes competitors just get so much programming externally to think that their reverse is hard or to think that they can't do it. I'd be curious to hear your response as someone who works in mental health full-time. No, I totally agree. I think that there is more programming that the reverse is going to be hard, just like we see people stressing about peak week. Like there's really nothing to stress about too much with peak week, but people stress about it, right? So sim similar comparison. And I think they we do have power with our words and how we communicate about reverse dieting post-show. However, there's also some value in the warning, but I think we have to remove the language of it's going to be hard. It's going to be a struggle. You are going to face, because that's not actually guaranteed. You could have had a really great prep and and still struggle. You could have had a terrible prep and end up having an awesome reverse. So none of we can't really predict how it's going to be, but there are risks that we can identify and be mindful of and hopefully shed light on and bring awareness to to competitors that I do think are helpful and beneficial because I think it would be worse if we have a overconfident view on a version of ourselves in the future that we eliminate the possibility of roadblocks and difficulties. And then when we face them, we're not prepared to face them. And that could sound biased because hi, I sell services about, you know, working through this. Mm -hmm. And so I understand that it can be hard. like, you may not trust what I'm saying. And I would respect that if you don't. However, it's important to also recognize that if you don't look at a potential roadblock that could come up when you get to it, it's going to feel like a lot of resistance versus this could happen. It's happened before. Even if it didn't happen to me, it has happened. What can I do to prevent it? And so I've had competitors who aren't struggling who hire me because they want to avoid roadblocks. And, you know, you could say, well, should you really help those people who aren't struggling? Well, if, if mentally you already believe you could face some challenges, I'm under the impression that there are challenges that you likely have faced in some other portion of your life or that you just want to be proactive towards. So I agree. We shouldn't be saying, oh, reverse diets are horrible and scary and post-show sucks. But I do think we should have those conversations like, hey, it could be problematic. It could bring up concerns. Here are some things to look out for. Yeah. In, in a scenario where maybe like Sammy described, let's say you're a competitor. There are some people, I had some ladies compete in January at the LA Fit Expo about a week ago. So they're reversing, right? And they're figuring this out for themselves now. If you're in that reverse and it's not going how you want, what are maybe some immediate actionable things you could do to start making that course correction? 
That's a great question. I guess it would depend on what is not going to how they wanted or planned. So let's say they're like, oh, I just keep going off plan. I can't stick to the plan. And then it's like, okay, well, what's causing you to go off plan? Well, I'm super, super, super hungry. So that's where maybe some education from the coach comes into play on what could be happening on a physiological level that might help them adjust their mindset to be like, okay, so this isn't, I'm not crazy for feeling this way. And then maybe there's actually a caloric intake change that needs to happen. And then that's adjusting for the client to see that it's okay to have a higher increase. It's difficult to say there's anything immediately that will resolve it other than identifying what's currently causing it. So Mm -hmm. that would be my very first step is what's actually causing or leading to this. And if you are in that struggle repeatedly and you're like, I figured out it's because I'm emotional and I don't have a goal anymore and I don't have something I'm working towards. So what's the point of this? Then I would say, okay, let's identify other reasons or benefits to following your plan that has nothing to do with your physique. So maybe in your prep, you were hyper fixated on doing this for your body. Let's identify some other reasons to do this that have nothing to do with your body. And, and we would identify some of those things to hopefully create a deeper intrinsic motivation. And then let's say they're like, no, every time I eat, like I don't trust myself. I can't trust myself around any food. I would encourage more mindfulness-based eating practices. Like in my program, we're doing a lot of questions before you eat. We're identifying where those beliefs are coming from, what's guiding to those decisions to eat. And then we implement resources in place. Like if you are emotionally eating, let's use some emotional health resources. If it is coming from a physiological place, let's identify ways we can prime yourself to work through those or maybe manipulate how you're timing things to better help you. And many people, when they come out of a prep, they aren't aware of all the negative behaviors that they engaged in during a prep that actually Mm -hmm. could have contributed to this. That might've been consistent body checking. It might've been intense volume eating where now their stomach never feels full because all they did was eat in high volumes or mentally they think they should be eating more. Um, Maybe they were always relating what they're doing to being hard or being something that's only because they're competing soon, but not identifying those other reasons. So um, it would really be like an audit on what's causing this and what could have contributed to it. And then making the the quick adjustment that could potentially get them out of there. Mm -hmm. That's a good point too, because I feel like a lot of things that we do while we compete, we've, and granted, in theory, it is normalized, right? Because, you know, if you're you're checking in weekly is one thing, closer to your show, your coach might be asking you to check in more frequently than that. So it's things that you need during a prep that aren't necessarily normal outside of that. So it's being able to mentally differentiate, like this is only necessary because of the extremes that I'm going through right now, but this isn't going to be my norm when I'm done with this, when I'm, when this chapter's over. So I think that's, that's a great point to add because I feel like people, once they get into this prep mindset, they're like, okay, I need to do whatever it takes. It's that extremist way of thinking, right? Which a lot of competitors have because, you know, we're the 1% that actually gets on stage. So it's like, we go through all of these things and then forget at the end of that 12, 16, 20 weeks that, okay, what I just did those last few weeks is actually not normal. It's not, maybe normal is not the word, but like not realistic, right? So it's differentiating those thoughts. How would you, what would you say? Oh, go ahead. You're you're good, Sammy. Um, How would you recommend slash someone handle a scenario? Because I think this comes up a lot too. And this like last, so about a week ago, maybe two weeks ago now was the LA Fit Expo show, right? So I've got these two ladies competing. They did both shows back to back. There's the NPC show, the natural show. And I've done this before with clients. I will, if I have to. Um, immediately one of them's off stage. She hasn't had a chance to drink water. We're just taking photos and her family is like putting like trail mix, snacks, chips all in front of her face. And I was like, wh- I like, I was like, shut it down. Like I was like, I don't know, whatever that Saturday Night Live character is, but I was like, <laughs> you guys know, like she needs to drink water. She's got a free meal today. Like let her eat her normal meals or her stomach is going to be torn apart. Like just let her chill. Um, so social pressure, I think can really come in immediately after the show. How many times have we seen people with like 
the cookies, the donuts, the boxes of it, they're showing up to the show, surprising the competitor. And then that I find can immediately set people off on kind of a bad trajectory because that sugar is very addicting. It hits those dopamine receptors in our brains. Um, and so how would you recommend people navigate maybe social pressure where their friends and family are telling them, oh, come on, you didn't eat with us for 12 weeks or 16 weeks. Like, you know, oh, it's just, it's just one meal out. Like, come on, stop being so difficult. How would you recommend or what, what words maybe could you give to someone that's in that scenario? Man, I love that you shared that story with your client because we do see that all the time yeah. at shows. It drives me crazy. Now, I used to be the competitor. Well, one time I brought like a mini suitcase full of treats that I had been hoarding. I would definitely don't not recommend doing that. I learned from experience as we've all shared. We've learned things from experience. So I was definitely in that boat and I understand it. You know, you're pretty dialed in. You are very dialed in in your prep. And when it comes to other people, my recommendation recommendation if if you have the opportunity to do it beforehand do it beforehand so address the elephant in the room before you see it tell your friends and family hey i don't know how i'm going to be feeling post-show but as an athlete it's important to me to recover to rest to replenish and that's going to look like this and outline that so they know what to expect also recognizing that they have also gone through this process with you. So they're likely grieving a version of you that they once knew that's now been transformed through prep. And if your intention is to maintain a positive reverse experience, maybe your intention is just say, I did it, I'm done, don't talk to me ever again. You know, I hope that's not your intention because generally I think when you sign up for prep, prepare yourself for an extended improvement season two, regardless if you're stepping on stage again. However, if you have the opportunity to communicate it beforehand, do so. If you don't, let's say it's after the fact, you know, you're backstage. If you have a coach like Laura, who's like fighting for you, that's awesome. I wish more coaches do that. I, the, the way I've seen other coaches actually bring the treats. Yes. That actually really surprises me or like encourages it because we have to know that your body's in such a vulnerable state, even if you followed a macro-based approach and you had a wide variety of food, and I'm no expert on, on this, so obviously you guys are more expertise on the nutritional side of things, but when you are already on a high from competing, and then you add on top of that foods that bring that even higher, when you have this reset happen, it's gonna be that much harder that much harder to keep going because now it's not just your dopamine that's been fired up, but your norepinephrine has also tanked with that. So now your ability to actually face the challenges and find them exciting is lower too, because your whole baseline has gone flat almost mm -hmm. because you were so used to bringing it here. And then at the height, you went even further. That's not to say don't celebrate, but have those communications in place before if possible. Now I'll share my favorite communication strategy is when you blank, I feel blank. So we're not getting on their case about it, but we're just saying, when you shove food in my face, it makes me feel like you don't respect my goals. Is that how this is? Because I believe you've generally been pretty understanding and respectful, Michael. So help me understand what you're trying to accomplish here. Or every time you do this and I say no, it makes me feel like you don't trust the judgment I have of my body. How can I help you to understand that better? Sometimes we have to draw that line in the sand and have that communication. And I'm not saying cut ties with people. I, I think it's better to have that open line of communication. But when you hold a mirror up to someone, you say, this is how it's making me feel when you do this. They might say, oh my gosh, I just thought it was funny. I was just joking. It's been 16 yeah. weeks. You, you were talking a lot about trail mix during your last you know, week. So I thought I'd bring it. Okay, now you also have to take some responsibility. If as a competitor, all you're doing is talking about all the foods you want to eat post-show, your family and friends who love you and care about you and just want to see you happy, they're going to bring you that. So you have to watch your own language and how you talk about what you're doing, but then you also have to encourage them to treat you in a way that's respectful and as the athlete you are. Yeah, I think that's a great point too. And it's like, as a family member who's been watching you go through this prep, it's like they they have your best interest at hand or in mind. So it's like, okay, yeah, you have been talking about this. So I'm going to bring it for you. So it's really, yeah. it comes from a place of love and pure intention, but in the process of it, it's more hurtful than helpful in the grand scheme of it. So I think that's, that's a great point and a great 
way of communication because you don't want to come at them like they did something wrong because it is a pure intention, but it's also like a, hey, yeah, I might've talked about it a lot. I was just hungry and I was adding lettuce to all of my meals. So of course trail mix sounded good, like that kind of thing. So it's, it's really nice when you have that open communication or the ability to openly communicate because it allows you more self-control over the situation and really just understanding what your feelings and emotions are about that certain thing. And especially if you plan to continue competing, it's nice for the people around you to understand like, okay, this is kind of going to be the MO every single post-show. You know what I mean? So it's like having that conversation one time saves you in all the future times. And similarly, you can reward them for treating you positively. You can say, when you respect my goals enough to support me by making me extra chicken, that means a lot to me. Or I really appreciate that you had helped me to get my fasted cardio in by waking me up when I'm struggling those days. Like also verbalizing when they're supporting your goals in a way is a rewarding type of behavior. So they'll want to continue to do that versus only pinpointing the negatives. I, I know I tend to stress on those sides, but I did want to just add that it can be helpful to also encourage the behavior you want to see persist as well. Yeah. Going off of what you just said too, in terms of like people being supportive of someone during their prep, I know that, and we touched on this a little bit, uh, like a little bit ago, but, um, maintaining relationships during prep. Do you have any tips for say, obviously someone who's like in an actual, like long-term committed relationship? I know I've seen, there's like plenty of posts of people talking about like their relationship struggling during their prep. What would you say is some good, like communication tips or or just practices to put in place to maintain healthy long-term relationships during a prep? or just relationships, even if it's a short term or, you know? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think we have to look at it like any goal. We have to prepare the person who's gonna be going through that with us for what that will actually look like. So having a open dialogue about what the expectations are, maybe that looks like at the very beginning, hey, this is kind of what I'm thinking about doing. This is what it could require of me. How would that affect you in a way that I might not see? And how can we make sure that we communicate when that does happen? Or how would it make you feel if I'm having to do X amount of workouts a day or I'm having to eat a different meal than you? Because some people have never gone through a prep and now this is a new version of themselves that their partner is going to be meeting. So they have to be like, what's it like to not have date night where we're going out to eat? How would you feel about us trying activities instead? And then there has to be a back and forth of like, are you feeling good about what I'm doing still? Okay, no, I don't like that you're never paying attention to me because you're going to bed at 8 p.m. Oh, okay, well, maybe we need to put that in the calendar and start scheduling these things. So being proactive is always going to be my answer generally because I'm very solutions focused when it comes to any approach, whether that's in counseling, mentoring, anything, because I think if we identify possible solutions to potential problems or we use the strengths we already have, then we're going to have a probably more positive experience. So I think when it comes to a relationship, you as a couple probably already have strengths of supporting each other. There's a reason you feel empowered to do this as well, whether that's from yourself or them being there and cheering you on. So identifying how they can support you and and asking them how you can support them Now, I will say I was in a very long relationship for a long time. It was like almost eight years. And he was with me from when I had the dream of prepping. And then all through like, I think it was by the time we got through it, it was like 12 shows later. And he was not a bodybuilder, nothing like that. But we were able to communicate about the expectations and he knew what to expect and how that would evolve over time. And when I was maybe bothered by something that was said or done, I was able to tell him that and vice versa. And then when you add on top of it work and school and other things, it can be very challenging. That's where having, I think I could have done an even better job of this. And why I'm sharing it is having time blocks where you're really spending time with each other, where you're communicating with each other, I think makes a big difference. Even if it's just a simple making sure you're texting them while you're doing your workout. It, it could be a distraction, but it could go a long way for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a, yeah. a great point for sure. Yeah. Let's, Um, I kind of want to circle back to 
reversing a little bit or just um, some of the common things that we see with competitors and their relationship with food. So an extreme example of that we hear a lot about too can come up from time to time is binge eating. And I've had, I've had this happen with some clients last, I think a few of my clients have come your way to get extra help when they, when they needed it. Um, so this is obviously something that's a much more extreme circumstance than just not following our reverse diet. So what are really, how do you treat that? Um, at the end of the day, you know, I think that binge eating has a lot more to do with our mental state than it does just with our physiology, although obviously that plays a role. So you as the professional, what do we do if we find ourselves in that situation or we've got a friend or a loved one maybe who's post-show or, or this can happen outside of competing too. Like how do you treat binge eating? Yeah, well, it's such a tough question because I always meet people where they're at. And I will say... With binge eating too, there's so many other factors that could be at play and maybe competing just brought like a magnifying glass to it or maybe the diet did. But I really appreciate how you said it's not just physiological. I've had people who inquire about working with me and then they just hop back on prep because that's their way of gaining control, right? Yeah. And it ends up- Or a mini, or a mini cut maybe, the mini cut. Uh, mi Yes. Many, it's like, no, your last prep was three weeks ago. Yeah. You're up 20 pounds. Like you're not going to get anywhere if you're, it's just yeah. not helpful. So, and there's people who will say, Hey, well, I'm actually feeling better because I increased my calories. And then they're like, but they're still talking to me about how bad their body image is. And I'm like, I could see this cycle potentially coming back around. So the way I treat it is very much focused on the person in front of me. But I can share some things that I think others can do even on their own. I mean, about a bunch of people go through the free food relationship coaching series I have, and it is very exploratory and psychoeducational in nature. But essentially, I would recommend you get very clear on what does your current relationship with food look like, as well as with your body, because generally there's a lot of correlation between body image concerns and disordered eating patterns. Um, it could also be that it's emotional. Maybe it's not so much body image related, but maybe it's emotional. It could be because of other things going on in your life. Some people will make the claim that it's because it gives them a sense of control, can't control anything else. So I'm going to turn to food. I think oftentimes binge eating presents as a really unhealthy coping mechanism that serves a purpose, but it's not the best coping mechanism. So I like to reassure people and have compassion that, hey, you've, you've done the best you can. This is the shortcut your brain made to treat whatever's going on. And it's become a cycle. So we can have compassion and identify other ways to fill those gaps, potentially. But I've had clients who it's not emotional. It's it's not about control. It, it's literally just this maybe fear of food or this belief that they can't have certain things. And so then it perpetuates in that way. So it really depends on where the client's at. And that's where I recommend a huge deep dive into that. And then if we want to go into practical advices, it depends on, like I said, whatever their starting point is, but we would say, okay, here are the specific resources that can help. So if it's because of emotion or if it's control, whatever it might be, I always think it's important to have a set of maybe questions or mindfulness or rituals in place that you can do around meal times to rewire how you're thinking about food and create moments of pause to really consider are these helpful ways to approach food or not? And can we do it in a controlled environment? So when we're in a less controlled environment, hopefully these mindfulness patterns come up. That's really how I developed that program itself. And then we implement actual resources based on what's expressed. So if someone's saying it's emotion, okay, well here, let's use this food and mood chart. Oh, well, it's um, emotion and I have a hard time identifying emotions or expressing them. Okay, well, let's dive into what it looks like to have emotional health and play that out in your life and utilize self-compassion. So it's funny you ask, how do you treat binge eating? But I feel like all I'm doing is explaining how to treat a lot of underlying issues that are leading to binge yeah. eating. Because yeah. ultimately, you know, it is, it, it does present as binge eating. And I'm not saying it's not binge eating, but there's usually underlying reasons for it. Absolutely. What are, what are the most common underlying reasons that typically lead to binge eating? From the competitors that I work with, it's body image and it's fear of food. 
So it's generally like, I'm afraid to eat more, or I'm afraid to eat these types of foods, and I don't trust myself when I do, or I'm afraid of how it's going to affect the way that I look, or I don't like how I now all of a sudden have gotten to this really tiny size on stage, and now I'm up in weight, and so I want to control the weight by restricting, and then that leads to binging. That's generally the cycle I see is binge, feel guilty. Yep. Yeah. And, the, and the pendulum. Exactly. Exactly. It's like, oh, I binged. Well, now I want to make up for it. Now I'm restricting. And then I want to make up for that. So I binge. And it's that cycle of guilt. And guilt is generally related to their identity, which is that of a competitor, which comes with, again, those standards, those definitions, those beliefs. So we have to challenge what does it look like or mean to be a successful competitor. So that way we can redefine it and then have new standards of expectations for that identity to be upheld without them swinging the other way. So now we can mitigate the guilt because now they're acting more in alignment with how they want to be acting. So we take away some of the, the guilt that comes from the binging. When we reduce the guilt, the restrictive cycle tends to stop. That's a big deal. If someone is not just binging, but also purging, whether that's actually purging through vomiting or if it's restriction of food, because that's a form of purging, or if it's excessive cardio, that's another form of purging. Whatever type of control mechanism is in place to essentially put that fire out, if we can mitigate that, we're less likely to repeat the cycle. So we have to see where someone's at in the cycle to then hopefully get it to the point where we're backing up slowly. And this is like only the last thing we have to deal with. And it's probably not happening as much. Would you say, so say someone's listening that has a loved one that competes, are there signs or social cues, phrases or things like that, that someone can look out for to identify it in a loved one or someone who's competing? Ooh, I love that. No one's asked me that question, actually. So normally I'm asked about like what people can look out for for themselves, but that's a really good one. I think language-wise, if someone keeps saying, I can't because I'm this, I can't have that because of this, that could be a potential red flag. It's kind of taking on a chore mindset versus a choice mindset. So be mi being mindful of those types of statements because those people are likely the ones who end up uh, binging in private or sneaking food later. Um, also, if you have food at the house and suddenly the food is gone and you didn't eat it, I think we might have someone in the house eating it, you know, so that's a potential red flag. But broaching that conversation can be difficult because you're walking this fine line of judgment where you don't want them to feel like you're judging them, but you also want them to know you care about them. So um, I think if you also notice someone consistently saying, I have to go do extra cardio because of this, or I'm going to put all this food to use in the gym because I shouldn't have had da 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 those are red flags with language. Um, behaviors, if you notice that your loved one is constantly body checking, especially after eating or before eating, red flag, um, identifying that with them. Hey, I noticed you generally check your body before and after you eat. Before and after you eat, I'm curious what your thought process is. Oh, I want to make sure. Da, da, da. Oh, okay. Red flag. So that's some of what you might see from a, you know, perspective of what they might be doing. Another thing is if they start avoiding the habits that they were engaging with before, oh, suddenly they're no longer wanting to talk to their coach, but they talk to their coach like every week, what's going on? And they're no longer posting on social media and showing how proud they are of themselves, what's going on? So if you notice those types of changes in normal behaviors, that shows us that something is happening that's affecting their normal day-to-day -day life generally by the DSM, which that's a whole other conversation, we can identify a disorder based on its impact on someone's daily life. So look at how their daily life habits might have changed. Um, and I think those are some good ones to start with or identify. Those are probably more of the red flags I would identify first. Yeah, absolutely. And I think those are definitely some really common ones and the most like identifiable from an outside perspective, for sure. Yeah. Oh, or chewing and spitting. That's another one that came, that comes oh, up often too. Like, oh, I'm going to eat this, chew it and spit it out. Or can I just taste it? And then I'm going to spit it out. If that's happening, don't encourage it. That's for sure. What about, what about smelling foods? Like, oh, like that's, 
That's a tough one. I think, oh man, it depends. I, if someone's smelling food and following it up with, oh, I can never have that. I'm never allowed to have that. That's probably a red flag. But if they're like, I want to smell this and then um, they just enjoy it and they move on with their day and yeah. then maybe it adds value, that's okay. Yeah. Sometimes I think that can be a, like a silly thing. Yeah, yeah, oh, oh, you want to smell my protein bar? You're like, oh, yeah, okay. Yes. <laughs> because it's like those little things that like what everybody talks about during prep, it's like your whole Instagram Explorer pages food or everyone has like seven different restaurants that they plan on going to post-show mm -hmm. or, you know, this is their snack, this is their restaurant, this is their breakfast the next day. Like just the over-obsession of those things. And it's like, I mean... I've been there. I've done it. Like I'm a food girl through and through like such a foodie. So like when I'm traveling for my shows, I am weeks ahead of time looking at restaurants. And I started to realize like, yeah, it's, it sounds fun. It sounds cool, but you don't realize the actual like pressure and negative, like stigma you put on yourself for this over obsession of food that you can't have, as opposed to just like, okay, let's focus on what's the here and the now. And then when that time comes, then we'll think about it. It's like, I don't know what I'm going to want to eat or you know what, just eat a burger or just have a steak, something super simple. That's going to allow you to then properly progress after that. Those are great additions, Sammy. I love those. Yeah. And I, Thanks. I think, um, with something like that, you're, you're spot on Sammy. I think that's something too, you're still, even though you've had this amazing trajectory, you're still relatively new. And I, I know I did those things too. Um, one thing I try to remind clients is like, if we're filling up our explore page with food, if we're spending weeks picking out restaurants, first of all, like if you, especially if your explore page is all food, it's hard. You're making it harder for yourself. And then if you are spending a lot of time looking at recipes and again, I've done all this, so I'm not saying, you know, I'm, I'm by no means perfect. Um, the mental energy is going to the food. It's not going to the prep. It's not going to your partner, your relationship. It's not going to work. It's going to the food. So, you know, if, if you are that competitive person, you know, try to, I always say like, you know, try to be hungrier for winning than you are for food. Mm -hmm. And so that way you're giving yourself like a fair shot to do your best. If you're kind of preoccupied, I think that makes it a little harder just all the way around. You guys ever watch like baking shows and cooking shows too? That's naturally the only thing I ever watch. Like <laughs> Even before I started competing, like I when I tell you the Food Network channel is the only thing I ever watch, I've watched every single food show on Netflix. Like whether I started competing or not, like that has been my thing. So it's, yeah. So like even going into a prep, like I was cooking for my husband, like every day was a new recipe, like, and that's just naturally what I love to do. So it's, it was hard for me or, and it still is to find the balance of I'm doing this because I also enjoy it, but I'm doing it because it makes me happy, not because I'm restricting myself from it at the moment. So mm -hmm. it's this mental, like you have to talk to yourself. It's this, you know, challenge that you go through every day. And it's like, am I doing this because I'm restricting myself or am I doing this because I love it? So it became the, it got to the point where it's like, I love cooking for other people. I also love food. So I'm happy. I'm finding this happy medium. I'm not getting angry at my partner for eating this food, even though I just cooked it. So it's like this balance, this yeah. hard balance that you have to find in the middle of doing it because you love it or doing it because you're restricting yourself from it. That's right. I love your awareness of that. And I think if that's something you've always done, it would be a shame if like prep, or bodybuilding were to take that joy out of it. And that's not to blame bodybuilding, but it is to kind of place a, a flashlight on some of those things that can come up from having to go through a restrictive diet. And when I say restrictive diet, it's not just like, you know, you're following a strict meal plan. It's also macros, you know, that's a restrictive amount of things you got to eat in a particular day. So no matter what you kind of face that restriction. So I like how you're identifying, am I doing this out of spite or am I doing this out of love? And that that's a good distinction to be able to make. Yeah. And you it's nice to like, 
talk about it out loud. Like that's like when things like that would happen, like even, and that's where the communication with your purse, like your partner or your friends is super important because like, even my husband would check in sometimes he's like, why are you watching that baking show? And I'm like, because I enjoy it. Like, he's like, don't do that to yourself. And I'm like, no, like I'm actually okay. So like being able to talk out loud to people and having that comfort level of the communication is super important. Absolutely. Celeste, do you watch cooking shows? I'm curious. No, I mean, yes and no. I like them a lot. At first, it was like, I noticed when it was a red flag in preps for me in the past where I was like obsessing over them. I love a lot of the baking shows, like the great British baking shows for all of and like Zumbos. That was fun too. So like, I like a lot of them. And my uh, family generally, like my sister and her husband have those on a lot. So I enjoy them. Um, but I no longer let myself get fixated on a seat. I notice if I'm like, oh, what's the latest season of that? And I'm like on the treadmill. I'm like, okay, no, we're not going down that rabbit hole because that's that I've seen where it can lead you, right? And like saving posts on Instagram, the recipes, the the desserts, the uh, food porn, you know, I'm like, should I say that word on here? But, you know, it's like anything like that can really be problematic in the future as we've all experienced from our own personal experience. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Cool. So, so much of, I think that ability to be successful on and off prep, because I also see too, sometimes competitors, I think force an outcome, you know, maybe by cutting their prep short, by initiating binge eating patterns and things like that. So much of this is really tied to our mental and emotional state. So this is a big question, but ultimately all humans have negative self-talk. We all have self-limiting beliefs, but those things can also turn into self-sabotage um, or just low self-esteem. So how do we, how do we, you know, try to minimize, I'm not going to say stop. We're always probably going to have some negative thoughts, but how do we try to minimize self-sabotage our negative self-talk? so that we can be the best athlete and the best version of ourselves. Yeah, you're spot on with the fact that what we say to ourselves can influence our behaviors. And we also want to be careful that we don't say something to ourselves that gives us a false sense of confidence. And then we even could limit ourselves in that regard, because sometimes being overly confident makes you not execute when you need to execute because you're overconfident in a future version of yourself. So sometimes it can work against us. So we want to be mindful with how we speak to ourselves. I generally like having evidence for the things that we say. So like if you are using an affirmation, like I am deserving, capable, and worthy of feeling amazing on stage. And I know this because, and then fill in the blank with evidence. I think that can be a really good way of kind of uplifting yourself. Otherwise, it might just sound like you know, a a playlist in your head of affirmations instead of like really truly fostering and developing a belief based off of proof. And you might not believe that you're capable yet because you've never completed a prep, but you might have other examples in your life where you've been able to overcome something you didn't think you'd achieve. Use those examples. I know I can face this because at one point I didn't know how to tie my shoes and now I do it without thinking about it. Cool, like that's enough, you know, that's good. We also, when it comes to sabotage, we have to recognize what's triggering the sabotaging thought to even happen in the first place. Is it that you're comparing your journey to someone else's? Is it that you have always expected the most of yourself and now you're feeling a little bit behind in things? Is it that you have consistently not done what you need to do? So now you're actually thinking probably somewhat truthful sabotaging thought of I shouldn't continue this. And I say somewhat truthful because there's evidence to make you believe that you shouldn't. However, what we forget to look at is the process. So many people become outcome oriented that they don't look at the process. So if you want to prevent self-sabotage, look at the process you're committing to and following and make sure that that's something you feel good about and you're reinforcing the importance of that. And then you can be honest with yourself and say, it's possible that I will try to sabotage myself by convincing myself that it's okay to have that little thing that's off my plan and I'll be fine. Okay. If that could come up, how will we address that thought when it does? How can we prevent that from actually, well, okay, I'll wait an hour 
from having that thought. And then if I still want that, I'll see if I can fit it in my macros the next day. So we might come up with solutions that help us to prevent the sabotage that we think or we're afraid of happening. And then when you are talking to yourself, it, it's going to have an impact, but also how you talk about yourself will have an impact. If you're telling other people, oh, no, I'm not, I'm nothing. It's not a big deal. Da, da, da. You may not show up as like that dialed in version of yourself. But if you're like, I'm really trying to be dialed in. I'm a committed athlete. I'm really serious about this prep. I want to bring my best. I'm sure you're not going to be slacking on your next set in the gym because you just express that those are the things that you are. So identifying how you speak to yourself, but also what goes into the reason you speak to yourself that way, I think is important. Love that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Mindset, I feel like is everything when it comes to not just competing, but life, right? Your the quality of your life, um, how you view yourself, your confidence makes, makes such a big difference in how we live our day-to-day lives. Um, so I want to, I also want to spend a little bit of time just kind of catching up with you, Celeste, and talking about what's next for you. Cause you're a competitor. Um, you've been on the national stage several times. So, um, what if like, what's coming up for you this year in 2024? Do you have more shows planned? Um, are you going to be in off season for a while? Like, what does that all look like for you? Yeah. So on the subject of self-sabotage, I'm trying not to do what I've done in the past, which is rush into a season or a timeline or think that I have to. And so I was really kind of fostering that version of me that doesn't need a timeline last year. But now I've like owned it. Like I don't need a timeline. I'll be okay whether or not it goes through. Now we always have the focus on what we want to achieve. So I want to become an IFBB bikini pro. Whether that happens this year, next year, five years from now, whatever to me, because I know it will come if I continue to show up and I continue to enjoy that process. So this year, the goal is to compete in fall. It depends on what my coach thinks. So I recently asked him about a prep and he was like, I don't think so yet. However, we have some more growing to do, but he did say he wanted to do a mini cut with me because my most recent check-in, he's like, dang, like we can keep increasing food. So he bumped me again. He's like, but maybe in a couple of weeks we do a mini cut. I want to see where you're at. And then probably build a little bit more. And I'm going to Austria in the middle of the summer, basically. So that's why I'm like, uh, if I prep after that, that would be ideal. But I kind of want to start a prep before that, go to Austria, then continue the prep, compete as early as late August, and then get feedback from some regional shows, maybe compete at the Ben Weeder. Because if I'm going to do a national show, I think that would be a great one to do. And then go from there into maybe a little bit of a reverse, fine tune, tweak things. And then if needed, 2025 hit it again. So that's the thought process. But the the goal is to compete at the end of the year. I love that. That's super exciting. Yeah. Well, good luck. We'll be, we'll definitely be watching and staying tuned with your journey. I always always love your prep updates and things like that. Thank Um, you. How about, how about work in your business? Do you have any like new offerings or anything, anything you want to promote or talk about too, while you have a captive audience? Yeah. Well, okay. So something new. So tell me all of it. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. What program do I sign up for? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think if you're struggling with anything we've discussed, then the five week food relationship program that I have is your best bet. Um, there's a free food relationship coaching series I have as well. That's both of those are on www.celestial.fit. Um, if you're looking for the food series, it's slash food series. If you're looking for the program, it's food freedom. Um, I'm recently launched with a 10 month psychoeducation and support group. So this is something I've been wanting to do for a while. Now that I'm living in a house and I'm more settled, I know I can. Thank you. <laughs> I know okay. I can host that and do that. So um, right now I have five women in it. That seems like a good number for me for the first round, but I'm not closed. Like doors are not closed yet. We'll probably start that by March, if not um, by the end of this month. Um, But that's going to be a 10 month group. We're meeting in person and online. And then um, with the business, as far as podcasts go, so I'm building a podcast studio in my house. I'm going to start doing in-person episodes, but it's going to be more than 
like what I do right now with like a interview, it's going to also be an I'm y'all know I'm worried. I'd be talking a lot, but it's confessions of a bikini pro podcast experience. So we're trying to have a full experience where we get to record doing a workout. We get to record cooking something in the kitchen that they like, maybe go out and enjoy some time in Greenville together. So it'll be more of an immersive look at the athlete. Um, that's like the goal of that. So I've invested a lot into the studio and yet I'm still like banging my head against the wall with some aspects of it because I was not born to be a producer. I'm born to be like produce this kind of, this is more me, speak, talk, interview, host, but not produce. So that's been uh, that's been a growing experience for me. So yeah, I would say those are the latest and greatest. And I'm going to be speaking at some different events this year, which gets me excited. Maybe I'll do another podcast party at the end of the year. Thinking okay. like LA or San Diego area, oh, yeah. possibly. Plus, so let us know. I know. <laughs> I got a lot of votes for that. So um, not making any official announcements about where or that that being the case, but that's something I'm thinking about the end of the year. So cool. yeah, those are my spiels. Okay, awesome. Well, we'll include, yeah, we'll include all of your links, website, all of that in the episode notes for everyone. So, you know, thank you so much, Celeste. It's always a pleasure. And it's, it's just exciting to see what you do. You inspire so many. And thanks for joining mm -hmm. us today. Thank, thank you, you so much.